Today's episode is sponsored by Meglio. Meglio is a fitness equipment company designed to help you get fitter, faster and more flexible and enjoy the process. With a range of resistance bands, mats, foam rollers, gym balls and more, everything is portable and lightweight so you can use it in whatever space you have available and enjoy the freedom of fitness on your own terms. I absolutely love Meglio and their range and it's my go-to brand for all of my workout goodies. They have very kindly given my listeners 10% off their product. So head to www.mymeglio.com and use the code MINDSET10. Thank you very much to Meglio. I'm Alexandra Legui. This is Mindset Unfiltered. Today's guest has achieved extraordinary feats. He is just one of three people to break the land speed record. He was the leader of the team who broke the sound barrier with Thrust SSC and drove Thrust 2 to 650 miles an hour in 1983. He is the brains behind the Bloodhound project, plus many other extremely incredible achievements. He has two top-selling books, his most recent called Take Risk, and another very exciting project on the way. This episode is about the mindset of a record breaker, taking risks, achieving the unobtainable, teamwork, and he describes what it's truly like to drive at 650 miles an hour. It's none other than the legendary pioneer who has engraved his mark repeatedly in history, Richard Noble OBE. (laughs) <laughs> well, honestly, when I was um, doing my preparation for you, uh, I I was just overwhelmed with how much stuff there is to talk about. So um, we'll try not to go on for days. <laughs> You've just done yep. so much stuff, haven't you? It's so exciting. Well, it's just a kind of lifestyle. And um, the great thing is in Britain is that um, we can do these sort of things. People will support them. Yes, they <clears throat> yeah, will. That's a crucial thing. And you- yeah. You've got to be able to uh, return the compliments in a big way for them. That's very important. Now, I have not been able to read it completely, but I did. All right, you've got one of those. (laughs) Risk, which is so far. That means there are actually two in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Did you buy yours, though? (laughs) Uh, Yes, I think I probably did. (laughs) (laughs) The title says Take Risk, and... We're not actually very good at taking risks. As We're well. hopeless at taking risks. Aren't we? No. So I found that quite an interesting. And also because it's got the exclamation mark, I thought maybe it's like an order. Yeah, you see, the fundamental problem is I think it goes back to the empire. And the empire basically was run by the hierarchy. And uh, we got used to sort of working for hierarchies. Hmm. The problem with the hierarchy is everybody basically is uh, working in the same direction to make the money or whatever. And there is no, absolutely no experience for an, an innovation. So they can't innovate. And of course, what, we're in terrible trouble as a country now. We borrowed all these huge sums of money to get us through the pandemic. And we've got to make the money and make it back again. And the only way you can do that is with innovation, not by just doing conventional stuff and just raising the prices. Nobody will thank you for that. But we've got to innovate. And um, that's what it's about. So uh, the books come out at the right time, I think. Yeah, it definitely has. And I think that perhaps actually um, 
just sort of thinking out loud through the pandemic, I would have thought that people who maybe didn't have time or space for coming up or creating ideas perhaps were given the opportunity. So yeah. we might find that um, as a result of this, uh, this offered time that people have been given that there might be some more ideas come out of the back of it. Yes, indeed. And there are all sorts of things happening at the moment. I'm working on a new programme at the moment, which we, we haven't launched yet. And it's very interesting, the number of people who've sort of appeared out on the scene and just said, we want to join in, you know, we want to work on this. A lot of people have been retired far too early in their lives. And uh, they're, they're, they're not very grateful for that. <laughs> no, no that's so It's very interesting. And then, of course, the other side is the education side. And with the Bloodhound Project, we were the largest STEM program in Britain. And uh, yeah, we're moving over 120,000 kids a year. It's an enormous thing. It's and, um, well really done with that because I'm fascinated by having worked in education myself as well. It's really lacking in innovation and we're lacking in young, notable pioneers, I feel. So mm -hmm. I'm so excited about your project. Yes, that's, uh, you know, it's very, very interesting. I learned an awful lot. And um, the, one of the key moments was when we were doing the, uh, the demonstration at New Key Airport in 2017. And we had, uh, I think we had 10,000 people come to watch the car run. And um, on the third day, we had the education day and we had 3,000 kids. And none of us knew how the hell we were going to deal with all this. <laughs> and the kids turned up and they didn't know either. But um, once we started running the car, they went absolutely wild and so enthusiastic. And they were asking, you know, really deep questions. And oh, it was fantastic. And then I realized what was actually happening. But the fundamental problem at school is that uh, the kids are getting all their information basically from screens. Yeah. And uh, as you and I know, just about everything on screens can be faked. So when they come face to face with something which is absolutely real, they get very, very exciting. God, that's such a good that's such a nice way of putting it as well because also the, we're really quick to just get online and get answers from google without thinking for ourselves and working yeah. things out for ourselves which i think people used to do more didn't they back in back in the old day well they were incredible in the old days because they could uh, you know i mean that the, the, they could engineer things with just minimal information it was just yeah. years and years of experience so it's absolutely extraordinary and of course, we don't have that today. This concept of uh, of innovation and, and risk taking and and where does that stem from for you? Like way back when? Well, I go back to 1962 and uh, sorry, 1952. And my dad was in the army and it was after World War Two. And um, Britain was a really very, very boring place. Everybody was very tired. You know, they'd just been through a war and uh, there was nothing, absolutely nothing exciting until suddenly this guy appeared in Scotland. We were based in Scotland in Inverness, a guy called John Cobb, who held the world land speed record, and he was going for the water speed record. And I was absolutely amazed as a little kid because all the shops had got pictures and models of the, of the boat. And then one day we went for a drive and around uh, um, the north side of Loch Ness, and we stopped there at Temple Pier and... Um, there was the boat, this fantastic thing. Uh, I, I was absolutely hooked. I thought, this is just amazing. What a wonderful thing. And um, so then, you know, I sort of got hooked and I, I got to do it, really. <laughs> Incredible. 
had you shown any signs of you know a, a sort of a younger age before seeing that had you shown any signs of, of the youth? Really, no, I, was very, I was very bored I mean um, as a kid it wasn't a very exciting time there wasn't any things to get excited about my dad was all about the army and so there were tattoos and military parades and so on that's excited him but it didn't excite me right. <laughs> <laughs> how interesting and have you always been a risk taker well, I began to realise that um, um, that actually, if you just went on not taking risks, life was going to be very boring. Mm. And I think you've only got one of these lives, so you better make the best of it. And um, the interesting thing is that um, if you start taking risks, other people join you, providing, of course, you've um, you've got the concept right and you've done your research and all the infrastructure, etc., has been thought through properly. People will join you, and you'll have a go. And uh, um, and, and you meet some absolutely brilliant people yeah, who are to throw in a lot with you, you know. But you have to be an, an encourager, don't you, to be able to get people to come on board with you? Because it's all very, it's one thing, you know, everyone's got that mate who says, oh, I'd really like to go and do this. But, but either they won't go and do it or they expect other people to magically make it happen for them. Whereas you were clearly the person that said, I've got this idea and I'm going to rally people to make Yeah, well, that's, that, that's the name of the game. Um, the crucial thing about it too is that you see people, most people work in hierarchical organizations. In a hierarchical organization, basically uh, you take no risk and um, basically you're controlled. Your whole life is controlled by, um, by other people effectively because you know, you've got this enormous pyramid and it's, uh, and it's incredibly inefficient because of course, people can't communicate up and down the pyramid all the time. And, um, and so people never get a chance to, um, to, to really find out what they can do and who they are. Now, um, Abraham Maslow got hold of all this uh, way back in, uh, in the 1941 with his hierarchy of needs. And he realized this important thing was that if you want to really stimulate interest and stimulate people, um, then basically you've got to give them responsibility. Not just responsibility, but authority with responsibility. Uh, so in a hierarchical organization, uh, people get responsibility, of course, but they never ever get the authority. The authority always remains up at the top of the board. So you've always got to report back to somebody. So if you set up an organization where you don't have to report back to somebody um, and you're actually, and people are actually out on their own, then they can find out what they, who they are and what they can do. So sadly, huge numbers of executives go to their graves without ever finding out what they could really do if they were given a chance. So what you've got to do in the organization is give them a chance. And then of course, what happens is all the accountants and everybody say, oh, you can't do that. The, com the company will fall apart. It won't happen, they'll wreck it. They don't, they're very responsible, very sensible, communicate incredibly well, and uh, we all go forward. I love that because I mean I think that um, if anything it's a bit frowned upon isn't it to be um, to be a bit maverick and to um, you've got to be maverick yeah you you, uh, you, you should take um, you know what are you doing you, you you've got a hierarchy here and you should be standing hmm. in your place and you shouldn't be pushing that you know like you say the Maslow's the, the self-actualization you shouldn't be doing that goodness no you're you're down there yeah exactly because it's all uh, it's all about control all about control. And there's a fascinating thing. I remember having a meeting with a bank manager years and years ago when I was just sort of starting off. 
And, um, you know, and he said to me, uh, Richard, you, you've got a big overdraft. What are you going to do? And I said, uh, well, uh, uh, I'm going to break the world land speed record. <laughs> he just looked at me curiously and, and said, no, look, I've got um, some very good contacts in the insurance industry. <laughs> so I said, no, we've got to break the land speed record. That's what we've got to do. And then I began to realize that, you know, um, our, our population our, our, is made up of a, col a huge collection of people who define what you're going to do. Okay, so you're actually, they're sensible, practical, and very boring people, right? <laughs> okay, so they will tell you what you should, should be doing. And uh, they, they don't like it if you start doing something else. No. Because basically you're, you're kind of, as you rightly say, a maverick, you're outside the system. So you've got to be outside the system if you're going to get anywhere. Well, I think you scare people, don't you? I think people live in fear of what might happen if they were to step out of line or to push their barriers or push their limits. Yeah. And, and if you're doing it and they're not, then you almost hold up a bit of a mirror, which can make people feel a little bit like, oh, gosh, if he if he is and I'm not, then what does that mean? Oh, I'd rather, yeah. you know, I'd rather just sort of discourage them. That yes, that's absolutely better. right. I'd rather discourage them so that um, that, that basically um, they feel safer that way. Yeah. yeah. So what we do is always we open them, these projects and we share them. Yeah. So we have supporters clubs, large numbers. Uh, for instance, at Bloodhound, we had some 7,000 people who were part of that. And so they were sharing experience without actually taking too much of a risk. Wow. But they were very good and they bought a lot of merchandise and that was very important. <laughs> and yes, am I right in thinking as well that that banker that uh, you touched on a minute ago was actually the person who ended up sponsoring you? Yeah, was... that's absolutely right. Yeah, that was <laughs> amazing, actually. <laughs> a year later, that. there we are. We got the first jet car and on the side of it, it said Williams and Glenn's bank. <laughs> that's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> that's a great story. <laughs> Have you, um, I mean, everything that you do seems to be about pushing the boundaries of science. Has that always been a big passion for you? Yes, really, because, um, again, it goes back to uh, the 1950s and the 60s. And Britain was doing the most fantastic things in during the Cold War. I mean, we had the first supersonic fighters. We had the lightning fighter, which would go twice the speed of sound. We had the V-bombers. We had absolutely fantastic stuff. I mean, it was, of course, military, which is uh, uh, which is well we had to be in those days but basically people the designers and the engineers and the manufacturers were kind of let loose to produce these very exotic stuff and um, you know and you could go to the air shows and you could see some fantastic flying and so on and I and, and of course you can look in the car world too like for instance you know there's Jaguar produced the, the um, produced the e-type Jaguar the first 150 mile an hour car available a, a beautiful car the car that um ferrari said he wished they'd built um you know um available to the man in the street so it's just absolutely fantastic think of the courage that was needed to do that mm. fund all the tooling fund all the design and uh, have a go do you have the same passion and interest for the current innovations in 
the likes of um, electric cars and uh, not really. No, I'm. Um, I, I love my, I love what we do, which are these very high performance vehicles, and they're very very interesting. Particularly, of course, when you're dealing with supersonic airflows and so on. This is really fast, fascinating stuff. Um, as a car, I, I drive a Golf, which is coming up to 300,000 miles. And um, <laughs> it's a, a very sensible, practical car. GTR. I'm not sure about the electrics. I'm really not sure about the electrics because I think a lot of people are going to be disappointed when they have to uh, replace their batteries. Yeah, and charge It's going to be very, very expensive. Yeah. The sensible solution to this has got to be hydrogen. Got yeah. to be. There's plenty of it around in the air. We've just got to find out how the sensible way of, um, of uh, transmitting it effectively, making it available. That's the way forward. And of course, the Chinese and the Japanese are doing that big time. Yeah, and that's what we should be doing. I'm going off course a little bit for what I sort of want to go down. But what are your mm. what are your thoughts of someone like Elon Musk and his brain and his and what he? Well, I, I met Elon. <laughs> we had a we had a three minute talk, <laughs> and uh, I came all we uh, I came all the way from the, the UK to go and see him in California, and um, I was talking about that the land speed record and would he like to join us with a Mat 1.4 car the answer was he didn't no he said he didn't like record breaking he didn't like racing and he was just concentrating on his cars he said i've got a hell of a problem now richard do you mind if i go and solve it <laughs> so no. that was that <laughs> that's amazing Gosh. very very interesting thing about elon which is that um he is an enormous person he's very very big and whenever you see pictures of him um, uh, in the media, etc., he looks relatively small. Yeah. Uh, this is all contrived, I think, in some way, but <laughs> it fascinated me. Wow. And what about the like the chat of robots? You know about the world being run by, or you know the power of, of the future of robots? Well, I think, you know, I, I think we've got a lot of enormous problems here and people are oversimplifying everything. Uh, so to take a simple version of this, the autonomous car, this is an absolute bloody nightmare. Mm. I mean, uh, when you and I drive anywhere, uh, we're always looking out the windows to see what the car next door is going to do and what the driver ahead of us is going to do. You can't get that from a computer. No. Um, so you can't, you can't interpret. And, and, and therefore, you know, then the autonomous car becomes a real problem. And Elon's been pushing this big time and saying, hey, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to have the first Tesla drive all the way across the US. And he's been saying that year after year after year, and it's never happened. No. So if it doesn't happen, it can't happen. What fueled you? Was it about breaking records or is it just about the project? themselves or i think there is there, there are a number of things one thing is that uh, uh breaking the records is fascinating because that is that is success that is a real seal of success it's not about a personal thing it's about the team it's about working together to achieve something and uh you know we're all kind of friends for life in this thing <laughs> and um it's a very very stimulating and a very very interesting way of of working your way through life i suppose really um, you've got that, and then there's all the challenges, and then there are all the people who say, oh, you can't do that, or that won't work, or take it from me, it's never, it's never been done before, and all that sort of thing, and you say, well, why don't we go and do it? Yeah. And providing you're sensible, and uh, it all makes sense, people will back you. Yeah. It's great. 
and you must be surrounded by like-minded people that you can share things with that are indescribable really to to anybody who isn't part of the project well yes you see the thing about an uh, about a land speed record or or, or a speed record is that you have to innovate big big time Otherwise, you're going to produce something which is like something that's gone before. You'll never get a world record. Yeah. So you've got to innovate. And you've got to pile innovation on top of innovation on top of innovation. Um, so the whole thing becomes incredibly unusual. So, for instance, the thrust SSC car, the car we broke the sound barrier with, I mean, that's got two huge Rolls-Royce Spey engines. Um, it's got a tiny little driving seat where Andy Green sat, long pointed nose. Um, it's steered by its rear wheels. Uh, and it's just an amazing team achievement. Yeah. Let's go into thrust a little bit. Now, I, what mm. I want to do is repeat or let, you know, give you, uh, you I'm, I'm fascinated by your mind behind these insane and successful projects rather than, um, you know, I know that you've told the story of, of, of thrust a million times so i want to get into the nitty-gritty of of how you how you came up the idea of the project and what what it was that that inspired you about your thrust project so it's thrust one two and s um thrust ssc yeah mm. wasn't it so it was and it was always going to be all three parts wasn't it yeah where like what was the first idea what was the first Thing that happened in your brain well, came the up. first thing really was uh, as a as a kid age six seeing john cobb and john i never ne sorry i never saw john cobb but i saw his jet boat crusader on loch ness uh, and that sort of gave me the inspiration and then i realized that it was a land speed record which was much faster and that's much more interesting and uh, so that's where it started and um i guess the thing about it is that you know as a kid you get a you get a you get a bug you get a an idea you really want to do it and it becomes very, very important to you. Mm. And therefore, you've got to go and do it. It's, you hear this of, um, you know, um, of authors and poets and so on. It's all the same thing. You've got to have a go. And there's a sort of nagging doubt in the back of your mind is that somewhere along the line, your kids are going to say to you, Dad, what did you do? I <laughs> said, well, I used to sell man-made fibres. You know, that doesn't really inspire them, you know. Yeah. So, so yeah important sorry is your legacy important uh yes i think it is it's 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 important to me because that's who i am i guess and i want to um make the best of my time on the planet i suppose yeah and i don't want to i don't i you know i hate being stuck in uh in an organization where um, you can see faults and wastes of people's time and effort and lives. And is it about um, the adrenaline, adrenaline that you get from pushing yourself and your brain to its limits, to its extremes? Uh, I don't think there's any real adrenaline in it, actually. I mean, certainly when something goes well, like, for instance, a day, somebody's just jumped out and said, yes, they're they're going to help us do something particularly difficult. And I think, wow, that is fantastic. Great. We can lurch forward to the next stage, you know. Yeah. Um, there's that, which is an incredible stimulant, that is. Yeah. Um, there's the teamwork, the people coming up with the most extraordinary ideas, 
um, which we can then uh, in incorporate in the program. Mm. Um, and um, the extraordinary success. Uh, and for instance, Breaking the Sound Bear was an absolutely fantastic moment. Yeah. I mean, it was, I, I was, I was standing on the desert there. I was absolutely bloody terrified because I'm responsible for the thing. And, uh, you know, and there's a car being driven by Andy coming up faster than uh, any airplane you've ever seen. And then a huge supersonic bang and you're absolutely terrified there's going to be a, an awful accident. But okay. no, the design was good. The engineering was good. The car was reliable. And uh, we broke the sound barrier five times. Am I right in thinking, though, that Andy did say that he drove it twice too often? Yes, he did. <laughs> <laughs> I love He's a very, very brave guy, Andy. Yeah. He did jolly well. Yeah, we were very lucky. And did you choose Andy to do it because he was an RAF jet fighter? No, 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 no. There was never any um, selection process. Sorry, there was never any um, uh, kind of selection team de uh, deciding. What happened was we set up a program of working with the Center for Human Sciences at Farnborough to find the ideal person for the job. And um, so it went, so we, what we did was we, um, when we launched the project, we announced that we hadn't got a driver and that I wasn't going to drive. And we basically, um, uh, we were looking for people who wanted to drive. And we had quite a number up here. And then we went, took them all through stages. Okay. And the winner was the winner, the person who came out top at the end of it all. So in other words, there was no committee saying that let's have that one. Never had that. It was self-selection. What, what was the selection process like? What did it involve? It was absolutely fascinating. It was sheer brilliance. So uh, what happened was the first stage was that um, we got everybody sitting around the table and, and I can't remember how many we had, probably about 30 or so. And uh, the and this was at uh, Farnborough. And uh, they were then given work to do, okay, which would determine their um, their personality and determine their IQ. Obviously, we didn't want anybody who was going to break with a high-stress high project like this or uh, who, who wasn't capable of handling it. Mm -hmm. So uh, that got us through the first stage. And we... We weeded out a few people there. Then we moved to the next stage, which was, I suppose, a month or six weeks later, where we put them all in a laboratory and we cooked them for 24 hours. And this was very, very tough. It really was. So what happened as they, as they came in the door, so to speak, they had to sit down and do a computer game, which was very simple, but very, very tough. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it at all. Really? But... Um, uh, Basically, there were quite a few military pilots, and they were used to this sort of thing, so they could do it. And then, um, then they had to keep working for 24 hours, and we had the, um, the laboratory was heated up. So I don't know what the temperature was, but it must have been about 80 degrees, something like this, simulating, if you like, uh, living on the desert, simulating stress under very difficult conditions. And then they, were, then they had to go back and do the computer game again. And some of them were even better the second time around. It yeah. was absolutely astonishing. The next one was the next stage was so we 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 did um, a few out there. Then the next stage basically was um, hand-eye coordination and driving, uh, and how could they really controlling? I suppose. So we were very fortunate to have the um, the British National Rally Champion, 
and we were fortunate to have a, um, a test track up in Yorkshire. And uh, we had, I think, about four or five at that particular stage. And um, the, the idea was to find out who was going to be the fastest. And the fastest run this track, because it was mud and it was wet and it was flooded and so on, was that um, they, they'd got to be very carefully controlled. In other words, driving around as fast as they could. So they started off doing a, a few laps with the rally champion so they could learn what was going on there. And then um, after that, they were, they were kind of on their own. And uh, Andy was very interesting. He wasn't the fastest. He started off very, very slow, but what he was doing was programming, programming himself. And so eventually he was driving very fast, uh, flawless laps. It was very interesting. Yeah. The fastest guy was more or less out of control the whole time and therefore yeah. dangerous. And that's, yeah, actually that's the opposite, isn't it? Of you don't want someone, I guess, because my, my instinct is like, why didn't you go to do someone like a Colin Noble or a, you know, Carlos Sainz or someone, you know, a, a yeah. WRC or something. But I guess it's a different mentality, isn't it? Because you don't want people to be, to be. You don't. Because it, basically it's a, a control, it, isn't there? In yeah. They've got to be supremely personal disciplined. They've got to be very brave. They've got to be tough. And um, then the next stage was uh, also very important was the question of um, how they were going to relate to the rest of the team. Yeah. Now you could have a sort of situation, a really unpleasant situation development with your team in that um, if the relationship between the driver and the rest of the team is not really solid, then what's going to happen is uh, the rest of the team is going to rebel slightly and say, look, we're grafting away like hell to get this done. We're going to make one man incredibly famous and um, we're going to get nothing out of this. Yeah. <laughs> so it requires somebody of very, very good tact and understanding and teamworking skills uh, to be in that position. Gosh, that's a really... And this was a hell of a thing to sort out. So we we're very fortunate because uh, Roger Green was a psychologist. Roger's sadly no longer with us, but my God, do we owe him one for this. And uh, he came up with this very clever idea. So what we did was we uh, said to the uh, said to said to the the finalists, uh, which I think we were down to four, I think at the end. Um, so look, what you've got to do is this: um, you've got to uh, meet everybody or try and meet everybody within the team. Make up your minds about, you know, the chances of this thing being successful and also design the cockpit. And we, um, and you have to have all the documentation, your documentation, into Ron Ayres' house, and Ron was our aerodynamicist, into Ron's house by midnight on whatever the date was. So Ron and I sat there <clears throat> and gradually this stuff came through the letterbox. And these were beautiful, beautiful works. I mean, they really were. 50 pages, you know, beautifully typed and everything and the drawings and diagrams and so on. And uh, we just stuck this lot unread into the filing cabinet. Okay. Now to do this, to get that documentation together, they had to meet everybody in the team. They really got to ask them, you see, and discuss with them and learn about it so that they could make produce a document which sort of gave their, their view on whether this thing was likely to be successful or not. And uh, so they met the team and they'd integrated with the team. The team thought that they were um, uh, that they were just doing this. But of course, what we then did was we sent Roger's psychological uh, questionnaire out to the team. The team weren't expecting this at all. 
So what is a double bluff? Oh. So the whole idea was to get the uh, driver candidates in front of the team, okay, and build up some sort of relationship. And then we were going to ask the team, but the team weren't to know that until the last moment. Oh my God. And they voted and they voted on Andy. So Andy won it. Wow. What so, and this worked so well. I mean, he did such a good job. Uh, it was astonishing, not only just in terms of driving the car, but absolutely sticking with this very difficult project all the way down the line through all the reverses and problems and hassles and everything else. Very brilliant job. Wow. Whose mastermind was that? That's Roger Green. Wow. Sadly, Roger's no longer with us, which is just a hell of a shame. It's a real, really very clever guy. Yeah, gosh, how interesting. Did you wish that you had been able to be the person behind the wheel? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm good at it and I can do it. Yeah. But the and fundamental problem was... With Thrust 2. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yes. The, the fundamental problem was, was twofold, really. One was that um, I got a growing family and maybe I shouldn't be taking risks like that. Um, uh, secondly, I'd already held the land speed record, so therefore I'd, I'd met my objectives. Yeah. But the, the most difficult thing of all was simply that um, this thing depended on making the money. Yeah. And um, um, I got nobody else who could really reliably make the money. And making the money and driving the car were two very, very demanding uh, roles, and you, you certainly couldn't combine them. I'd made the mistake of trying to do that with Thrust 2, and uh, um, certainly with this bigger, huge project, this was uh, uh, this just going to be um, overwhelming. It fell on both counts. What was Andy's reaction when he was the chosen man? Uh, he's very pleased. And he's not a very emotional person. So uh, he was just very, very pleased. And we gave him a large key <laughs> with a key fob on it. <laughs> and he looked at this and some little kid said to him, what's that? <laughs> and he said, that is the key to the fastest car in the world. <laughs> wow. Uh, so we got that bit right. <laughs> was it intentional? Because the record came, was it half a century in a day, I think, after Chuck broke the sound barrier? In That's Earth. very interesting. You've done your research. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing about that is that uh, Chuck wasn't the first. Oh, really? No. The first? So poor old, well, poor old Chuck Yeager was stuck in a very, very difficult situation because I, I was talking with, um, our, um, oh, God, who's it? Uh, uh, Jeremy Clarkson. Yeah. And uh, Jeremy said, look, you know, I've just had this interview with, with Chuck Yeager. He said, there's something wrong, Richard. There's something wrong. I've met an awful lot of people who've done well first, and they're all very humble people because they know the odds were absolutely against them, and somehow they got through. But this guy wasn't. He said, there's something wrong. And I said, yeah, um, it's George Wheaties Welsh. Hey. So Jeremy said, who's Wheaties Welsh? Well, Wheaties Welsh was the, um, the first test pilot to fly supersonic. And uh, they were both out on uh, Edwards Air Force Base. And uh, he was flying the um, XP-86, which became this, the Sabre. And, he, uh, and Wheaties Welsh was an amazing guy, uh, so extraordinarily brave and determined and everything else. 
and he took this prototype airplane up and, and went supersonic. Um, I suppose it was about uh, two weeks before Chuck Yeager. And the problem with Chuck Yeager's thing, operation was that uh, they got a big bomber to, which had to carry the little rocket plane underneath. Um, and um, basically they could never get them both absolutely ready to go together because of you know technical problems and so on. So they were very, very slow. And um, anyhow, the story goes that uh, on the great day, the, the, um, the bomber was climbing up through the, with the little rocket plane below it, and it met Wheaties Welsh coming down supersonic on the way down. Yeah. So it boomed them on the way down. And um, the, uh, all the people there at Edwards Air Force Base were really enjoying this because, you know, these great thuds of supersonic bangs all the time. And then um, what happened then was uh, Chuck Yeager was uh, dropped from his uh, rocket plane and he flew upwards um, and he went supersonic, which was a great achievement. And he came down, landed at the base, and everybody said, well, that wasn't very good. He said, well, why not? Well, because Wheaties Welsh's bangs were much greater than yours. He was, of course, a long way away because he was so high up. Oh, my God. So then what happened was there was a bit of a nonsense. And uh, the new United States Air Force basically wanted to, um, uh, wanted to promote the fact that their pilot uh, was the first to design barrier. So uh, arrangements were made to do that. So uh, Chuck Yeager had to sort of live with that for the rest of his life. Wow. How Unfortunately, Wheaties Welsh, who I'd love to have met, yeah. George Wheaties Welsh uh, was killed a, a few years later flying a, uh, an inadequate airplane, which is just really bad luck. Oh, no, that's awful. Would he have been one of your heroes? Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's a great guy. I would have loved to have met him. I mean, you know, he was, uh, he was one of the very few who got airborne during the... Um, uh, when the Jap Japanese um, attacked the, the uh, American fleet in Pearl Harbor. He was one of the few who did that, uh, got airborne and started taking him out. And, oh, amazing man, absolutely amazing man. Sadly, no longer with us. Mm. You talk about the bang. With the um, SSE, was it 40 miles away that it could be heard? You could hear it 40 miles away, I was told, yes. And it was shaking buildings in the little town of Gerlach, which was 15 miles away. And this, of course, is proper motor racing, you know, not this wimpish round and round stuff. This is the real thing. Well, I mean, I imagine F1 is a little bit boring and slow for you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do wish they'd change it. I really do. It could be made so exciting and it isn't. Well, they need to put a rocket in and stuff like that. <laughs> well, that might help. <laughs> Have you come across the extreme E? Because at least that's across the desert and things like that. You know, that's pretty fun. What's that? The extreme? Extreme E. It's like Dakar, but but Dakar meets WRC. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. No, I haven't. No, no. Yeah, that's... But, the, uh, deserts. I love deserts. Oh, boy. Yeah. Mm. Too. I loved... Um, well, I'm like, you touch on the fact that, of course, you were in... Uh, which desert? Black... Oh, well, Black Rock Desert is in Nevada. That's where yeah. we ran. I mean... The conditions you touched on there, which I hadn't really thought, hadn't, I don't know why I hadn't really thought about it, but the conditions would have been insane for the whole team, wouldn't they? Let alone, I dread to think the temperatures inside the car for Andy. Yeah, um, basically, it started off being quite hot and then it got colder and colder uh, as we were getting nearer and nearer to winter. Wow. And um, 
Yeah, and it's uh, certainly with, uh, we had a lot of trouble with temperature with stress too, too in the desert. And um, it's very tough on people because you get very, very tired. And we would be up, we'd generally get up about five o'clock in the morning. We'd be out on the desert to run at about 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, and then later on, we'd run in the hotter part of the day, um, which is about sort of midday or so. So when you're, when you're designing the car, you surely have to design the components to be able to deal with the pressures of the desert. And, and yes, the extraordinary thing is that there aren't major pressures from the desert. Okay. I mean, if you think of a sort of uh, desert like uh, the Paris-Dakar, of course, where things are being, cars yeah. are flying through the air, and so this isn't, this is absolutely flat. Yeah, okay. It's absolutely flat. It's as flat as a billiard table. It's amazing. And, and um, John Aykroyd, who does... John Aykroyd, who designed Thrust 2, was famous for saying, well, do, do you realize that, that the car actually worked harder when it was on its transporter on the main road than when it was on the desert? Yeah. Because the desert was so smooth. Yeah, of course. And it had been designed for those conditions. Yes, it had. Yeah, he did. John did really, really well. Yeah. Astonishing achievement. He designed the car more or less everything himself. Wow. Gosh. That's incredible, isn't it? Um, so let's, we'll dial back a little bit because um, Thrust 2 is obviously the one that you did drive. Mm, and yeah. you have a very famous quote of saying, what was it, at about between sort of 200 and 400 miles an hour, it's quite boring, is that right? Uh, no, yeah, really from about 300 on, 300 to 500 is boring. Can you Just explain? get faster and faster. <laughs> yeah, talk, so talk us through the... I mean, from zero to, to to 300, what's that sensation like? It's like a rally car. I've never driven a rally car in my life, but um, it, it's what I imagine a rally car is. And what you're doing is you're, you're record breaking. So that um, your driving procedure is absolutely crucial. And you, you only get, uh, because of money and time and yeah. weather and everything else, you only get a few runs and uh, you mustn't waste them for obvious reasons. Yeah, of course. So when you start, um, what we were able to do with Thrust 2 was basically to take the engine up to 92% uh, of its maximum RPM, hold the car on its brakes, and it would just hold at that while you do your last engine checks, make sure everything's all right. And then basically you're, you, whip, um, you're, you, you, you're, you whip your left foot away from the brakes. So these are left foot, all these cars are left foot brakes and you slam the accelerator right down to the floor. So you're releasing 35,000 horsepower. Oh and, um, and then it goes. <laughs> and of course, it's not very stable uh, until it's got a decent airflow over it, which is about 300 miles an hour. So it, it's um, sliding and slipping all over the place. And you've got to drive it down a lane, which is only 50 foot wide. And you've got to keep it in that lane because if you lose, get out of that lane, then you're in real trouble because you don't know where you are. So you've got to you've got to keep it within that lane. And um, once you start getting above 300 miles an hour, um, the car seems to stabilise. And that was largely because uh, uh, John Aykroyd had designed the car with two tail fins, oh, yeah. and that worked incredibly well. Yeah. And then once you were past that, it seems to sort of settle down. And uh, you just sort of sat there, really, as it went faster and faster. 
It was such a good car that I could drive it to an accuracy of one and a half inches at 650 miles an hour. And it was designed to do 650, and it did 650.88, which was just absolutely brilliant. And the record was 633? Six, 633, and the record before Gary's record was 622. My word. But the interesting thing, too, is the thing called the somatographic illusion. So um, what happens is that your, um, your, your mind and your balance is controlled by your ears. Uh, okay, so this is what gives you your, your, your balance. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't actually realize this until it started happening to me. So if you can imagine, you're coming up towards the start of the measured mile, you're going to accelerate right the way through to the measured mile. So you're trying to get the, the maximum speed out of the car you possibly can. And um, the extraordinary thing is because your mental processes are working really fast, everything happens in slow motion. You're very, very relaxed. And you can see every single detail on the track come up and go under the car at 650 miles an hour. And for instance, where the timekeepers had uh, crossed the, 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 the tracks, with the timing lights and so on, I could see those timing lights kind of those, those those wires come up and go underneath the car, go through the measured mile, and then you've got to stop, slow down, and stop. And that's when the fun really starts, because you're doing something there which hadn't been done before. So you come back on the throttle, okay, very very gently, and you cancel the afterburner, which is the big flame at the back, and then you come back very very gently on the throttle because. Um, what's happening now is the engine's slowing up. And because the engine's slowing up, it's no longer uh, um, taking in this vast quantity of air at the front. So there's a real danger. It's starting to build up drag at the front. And if it does that, the car will go sideways. And if the car goes out of line, there's a critical angle of yaw, where, which might be uh, five or six degrees, no more than that. It goes five or six degrees out, it then goes sideways. When it goes sideways, you then get a... Um, a flow of air, supersonic air over the top of the car, and it'll fly, it goes up in the air. That's it. So it's very, you don't know quite, you know, you hope to God it's going to be all right. And you've got to count three. One, two, three, like that. And um, then that's because we've got to cool the engine. And then and only then can you uh, press the button for the brake parachute. And the brake parachute is seven foot six in diameter. It comes out on... 200 feet of uh, nylon, two-inch cable, and uh, nylon because it's got a, it, it's got extensibility. It comes out with instantaneously with a bang, and you're losing speed at 120, 130 miles an hour per second, and that upsets your um, inner inner ear. Yeah, of course. And you think you're driving straight down into the middle of the world. Yeah. That's an extraordinary experience. Right. Must fail. And the pilots uh, flying the X-15 rocket plane in the 1960s had the same problem. So they were flying up like this, trying to get altitude to a certain altitude. And they were very worried because their acceleration meant that they thought that they were flying and falling over on their back. They weren't. But um, that was the impression. So it's only there for a few seconds. And then you're down to 400. And then it's uh, allegedly 400. You're just relaxing you really want to open the door at 400 it's getting boring again you know <laughs> <laughs> and then you bring it to a halt and try and remember everything you possibly can and the process from uh from acceleration to end is how long 
Uh, well, we're, we're going to use the afterburner and full power for just on a minute. So you've got probably a, a minute there, and I can't remember how long the deceleration was, but it's far, it's so probably about 30 seconds. So one minute, 30 seconds, something like that. Oh my God. 13 miles. Yep. Have you got any idea how bad the G force load is on a human body? <laughs> no, I mean, it's perfectly, it's fine, absolutely fine. Really? Um, yes, I mean, once you get used to it and you understand what it is, it's wow. not like an aeroplane, a fighter pilot's G-force, where you're, but the aeroplane is going like that and you're getting negative G or it's going like that into a and loop, you're getting positive G. You're just being pushed back into your seat. Yeah. So it's like a very, very fast airliner, if you like, running down the runway. So what training did you do mentally and physically to prepare for this? I was very lucky. I was trained by the Royal Military Police and I was just incredibly fit. Uh, it was um, it was an extraordinary experience. I mean, I was with the barracks for about 10 days and, and we just never stopped doing things. We were playing squash, we were running, we were swimming, or more squash. <laughs> we went on and on and on. And running backwards. Now that is, oh my God, is that painful? Yeah. And I was very fit. I'd never been as fit as that before. And but it's very important. It gives you confidence. Yeah, yeah, gosh, yes. Was the focus to be sprint fit or strength fit or endurance fit? I think endurance really is how it worked out in the yeah. end. Uh, and um, it, was, it was really a plan that, that they came up with, which just, re, just really built confidence. Yeah. So what had been happening with the project is, of course, I'd been... Uh, roaring around making money everywhere I possibly could to keep it going and also driving the car but driving the car only up to about 250 miles an hour on runways and things um, but no this was the next stage and they really helped me enormously goodness me did you have any fears leading up to the day no you uh, you put all that behind you basically you've made the decision that you're going to do this and you're going to stick with it if it becomes dangerous then you've got obviously the, the, the right to walk away from it but you're a member of the team yeah. it's a whole team thing you're not going to let people down uh, when uh, you know they've all worked like hell through impossible conditions and with very little money and everything else and when they put the lid down on the car and you're about to drive you're taking all their hopes and dreams with you and you've got to deliver you know? yeah but you must have I mean what about people around you because there's one thing you having that dogged determination and your team having that determination but how did you cope or were you met by people family friends or or naysayers that were that would try and bring in any element of doubt or anything like that that's a very interesting question um yes there were a few naysayers because the um the gary gabalich's car which uh, taken the record at 622 uh was effectively um a very thin rocket car on with uh, on its wheels and um, everybody was saying no thrust two is a you know it's too fat it's too broad it's too big it's jet whereas it should be rocket and uh, everybody was saying you know you can't do it won't do it but we'd done the transonic wind tunnel testing and we knew we could do it and um, what what's even better about that is we John Aykroyd had produced a car which was simply totally and absolutely controllable and absolutely reliable 
And it got to a point where, you know, you wake up in the morning and say, oh, well, okay, we, you know, got to go out again and uh, try and cream another two or three miles an hour out, you know, out there. Um, so that's what you were doing. And did you cut people out who were bringing any negativity in? Is there something in... in they in would... Uh, it's very interesting, the psychology of this, is that um, everybody was being if pushed to the limits of what they, or pushing themselves, sorry, they weren't being pushed, they were pushing themselves to the limit of what they thought they could do. Mm -hmm. And uh, where you've got a situation where you've got somebody who um, felt that they weren't up to it, they would leave almost immediately. Yeah. And the interesting thing was that, because, sorry, we've got a phone here. The, the, the interesting thing was that uh, because of the, the way the teamwork worked, they knew that uh, that, particular person wasn't going to make it yeah. and they'd have recruited somebody to replace him or her within days literally yeah there's just no space for somebody who's against it I guess well that's right and of course uh, it's everybody's hopes and everybody's dreams and if you've got somebody who's going to um, not help you get there uh, you really don't want to work with them I don't want to divert too much but I know that you do um, speaking events for companies yeah. That approach must that must transfer over to every other area of our life. It does, or it could. Yeah. But unfortunately, people yeah. don't understand it. Could is the right They word. don't understand it, and yeah. um, they don't achieve this sort of level of teamwork, um, and they they really just don't. Um, and I suppose with our case, one of the crucial things was we never had any money. Because you haven't got any money, nobody's chasing the money because there isn't any money to chase. You're yeah. chasing the objective. That's what it's about. Yeah. So there is a, an extreme and 100% focus. Yeah, that's amazing because then that's down to passion. That's true. That's true team spirit there because yes, not absolutely right. That, that here's here's a you know a gold you know a gold brick at the end of it. It's not that. It yeah. was never going to be about that. So you were you knew that you were surrounded by people who were as passionate as you. And yep. if it wasn't, if there was any element of doubt or a lack of passion, then they just weren't welcome, I guess. Yeah, well, um, they were. everybody got responsible um, positions. They were responsible for different bits of the car. And basically, if they weren't going to perform as everybody else is going to perform, then everybody else would get pretty fed up because um, they were let, effectively letting the side down. Amazing. And... Uh, the other thing which is very important too is, and it's, um, it's a problem we have with the hierarchical companies, is that uh, when, you're, um, when you've kind of finished, when you've kind of retired, there's very few people can actually look back on their career and say, I did that. Mm -hmm. um, they can always say, I was a part of this huge organization, and yes, I've got a nice flashy car outside and so on, but um, they can't actually say, I did that. Because in a hierarchical organization, uh, you're never actually responsible for anything, really. You've always got somebody you've got to re report to, etc. But in our teams, um, you can do that. Because you can say, thrust tube, yeah, I did the wheels. Yeah. Uh, Glenn Barsha did the brakes. Uh, yeah, I did that. Yeah. And, of course, that's very satisfying. And, of course, the other thing, too, is that um, it's what we call a tombstone project. So in other words, what's actually happening is that regardless of what happens to you in the rest of your life, we've been very successful and uh, we got a world record. Oh, hey, that's it. Yeah. And I've got the world record certificate on my wall. Everybody's got one of those. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. What a motivation. Yeah. 
Mm. I think is, you know, I think like people, most people are, um, or, uh, you know, a large majority of, of the population are lacking in what their true motivation is, you know, their true goal. Yep. And it doesn't have to, I think everyone always assumes it has to be a long-term goal. But it No, you're absolutely right. Mm. It, your goals can be constant. You can have constant goalposts that you achieve and done and brilliant. And like yep. you say, you've got your tombstone thing there that's on the mm. wall. And so then we've done that. So let's do another one. Why does it have yep. to be just Absolutely. One? What do we learn from the first one? Let's yeah. uh, employ it on the second one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's fear, isn't it, I suppose, that stop people from... Doing well, it's it's the hierarchy and it's the financial world. Um, you know, you, if you talk to uh, um, accountants and solicitors, they all hate this sort of organisation, yeah. a flat organisation. Oh, yeah. how's it controlled? Who's controlling the money, for God's sake? Yeah. You know, the fact that you're all absolutely controlling the money amongst yourselves and so on is something they just don't understand. No. And I still remember the start of the, the uh, of the thrust um, thrust two project where we had a splendid, very well um, recommended uh, um, accountant turned up. We all sat down for dinner one night and he said, where's the money? And I said, there's no money. He said, you can't go and break the land speed record without any money. I said, yes, we can. Absolutely, we can. We'll make it as we go along. And uh, he couldn't couldn't understand that. And that's because so that was the end of that relationship. Yeah. yeah, no one in there doing it for the money. So there doesn't have to be excess money because no one's no one's doing it with the financial gain at the that, end that's right absolutely yeah yeah and uh, sadly of course uh, at the end of your uh, at the end of your project that's it it's over um mm -hmm. the sponsors won't want to put any more money in it there'll yeah. be a, perhaps a, um, a few days where the car can go to exhibitions and shows and and that the, the money from that goes off to pay the debts because we always end up in debt one way or another mm -hmm. and um yeah but there's really no, no no further existence. And people don't want that. They really don't want that because you've been totally and utterly focused on getting to your getting to your target and achieving it. And that's it. Everything else is boring compared with that. How did you get insurance? <laughs> uh, through Lloyd's. <laughs> Lloyd's people will insure anything. <laughs> no, they're great. They are really great because basically they, uh, uh, they've got a sort of, well, they like to say that they can insure anything. And also they kind of look after us. And, uh, yep. So we were able to insure Andy and I was insured and so on. It was good. Can't insure the car, of course, but um, no, nobody's no. going to insure that one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so then 10 years, well, actually, then you went to through AR, ARV must have been your next project, was it? Oh, I love that project. Yeah. Did you actually, did you start as a pilot or you were certainly always interested in No, I, I basically, um, I got a problem uh, and Ken Norris, who was, our, who worked with us, who designed on Campbell's car and um, boat uh, and Ken uh, identified this and said, you know, the problem is, Richard, you don't have enough self-discipline to do this. And so the answer is that really is you should take up flying. So I was, I was fortunate the sponsors agreed to fund the flying. And uh, I began to take fly. And um, you suddenly realize that you really got to have the discipline there big, big time. Because basically, if you get it wrong, it'll drop out of the sky and kill you. So um, you've got really got to get that right. 
And it's not like uh, a car where, you know, you can drive down the motorway and then find something's wrong and you can pull to the side of the road. Oh. You can't do that in an airplane. No. So all your checks and everything must be absolutely perfect before you go. So that produces this terrific discipline, which is very, very important. I would absolutely love to learn how to fly. Well, would, why don't you go and do it? That, yeah, that, that is high on my, my to-do mm. list. Yeah, uh, well, you can do it in, almost at any age. And uh, the first thing to do is go to the local flying club and um, get them to uh, fly you through a loop and go and do some spins to terrify yourself. And you know, if I you're did, okay after that, you'll be fine. <laughs> I did a wing walk a couple of years ago. Oh, yes. Yeah. That was amazing. And they did yeah, a yeah, you, You're stuck on the spike. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you know, that's it. Uh, but um, and then you're out on your own. And then that's when the fun really starts. You're not, I guess you're not fueled by adrenaline, are you? Adrenaline is terribly dangerous. Yeah. Terribly, terribly dangerous. It's, it's funny, isn't it? Like, and, um, uh, you know, so for instance, uh, and that might be required, for instance, in, in circuit racing. Yeah. But not in this. Absolutely cold determination and, uh, and uh, control is what is what it's self-discipline is what it's all about. Do you know what's interesting, though? Because most people... Um, most people assume or would assume that you or I mean and the same with circuit racing drivers they most of them hate adrenaline because none of it is about that and and you know yep. one would assume that they're all of you know people who push themselves to extremes in mm. things with a motor are addicted to adrenaline but actually adrenaline is about being out of control and that's exactly. the opposite of what all of you you know yep. high precision it's it is is total control mm. isn't it it's the polar opposite. And in fact, the more adrenaline a driver has, the worse their driving is going to be. And of course, the other thing is, it's going to be absolutely terrifying for the team. Yeah. Because they know that the guy is Real not strictly in control. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so you've got to be very careful. Selection procedure is very important. So uh, it, it was 10 years later, wasn't it, that you created Project Bloodhound? Yeah, mm, yeah. So we started that in when were we were in 2007. We started on that. We launched it in 2008. And presumably the idea of traveling at supersonic speed was born, uh, you know, was, was obviously all part of a very long process. It's not that it just came up 10 years later for you. It was a, or was it 10 years in the making? But what was actually happening was that uh, there was, um, the Americans that decided they were going to try and take our supersonic record, thrust us a sea record. So we got it. We, we got it defended. We really can't, couldn't sort of sit there and let uh, the Americans walk away with it. No. And uh, so we set up this absolutely fantastic program, absolutely brilliant program. It was very, very ambitious. I mean, incredibly ambitious. And I look back on it and think, gee, God, we set off to do this. And um, we got a long way down the line. But um, unfortunately, we had a lot of trouble with uh, the, the financing. And you can understand it. I mean, you know, you're, you're needing more and more money because the, the project is very expensive and it's um, soaking up a lot of money. Not in, it's, it's not expensive in Formula One terms. It's, uh, it's very cheap. But um, it's, uh, it's expensive if basically the sponsors are really not quite sure about what's going on. Yeah. 
and uh, so you really are pushing the boundaries of what's happening. It's not another race car. It's uh, it, it's it's a vehicle which travels fast, will accelerate faster than any airplane, and yeah. do things uh, an airplane simply won't do at low level. I mean, it's a hell of a thing, and we're very very proud of it. We put an enormous effort into it, and um, the fundamental problem was as it got bigger and bigger. Um, of course, it got more and more expensive. And you couldn't offset that expense um, by demonstrating it. In other words, going out and running it somewhere and getting an enormous amount of publicity. You couldn't do that because you've got to get the thing finished. And so the costs were going up and up and up. And it was becoming more and more difficult. And um, then suddenly we made the big breakthrough. We had an extraordinary experience, which was... Um, Everybody's getting very fed up because uh, basically we weren't able, I wasn't able to bring the money in fast enough. And so we put the car on display in London, um, in the city, because that's where all the money is. Right? Wrong. <laughs> so what happened? We put it on display there. 8,000 people came to see it in two days. And uh, there was absolutely no offers of sponsorship. They they happily bought them the, the um, they bought the merchandise. They spent sixty thousand quid on merchandise, um, but they weren't going to sponsor. Um, and so uh, we we we'd failed. So I went to George Osborne, who's the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and said, "George, look, um, you know, Bloodhound, I believe, is doing a lot of good for the country. Mm. Uh, basically, we've got this enormous education machine, which is." Uh, uh, you know, which is basically um, engaging with 120,000 kids a year. It's they're, they're getting very excited over this. It's really it's doing some good there. And um, but I can't support it. I can't support it anymore. It's going to, you know, it needs a lot of money. It's going to collapse. And uh, George was great. He said, right, okay, well, let's find out. Let's find out if this is of any valuable any value to the country. So he set up an enormous program. Um, run by the civil servants, uh, basically to evaluate every single aspect of it. And at the same time, um, while we were really struggling, suddenly a great thing happened because a splendid Chinese gentleman, Li Shufu from um, uh, Jili, decided that uh, he wanted to, uh, to sponsor us. And he became, or his, his company became our largest sponsor. And uh, then the next thing that happened was that uh, we got a letter from um, Joe Johnson, who was Boris Johnson's brother, uh, who was then Minister of Transport, um, with an offer for four, uh, four or four and a half million pounds. And that, together with the Chinese money, meant we could really do it. I mean, it was really coming good. Uh, somehow, the damn thing was an enormous miracle. But, but thanks so much to the Chinese, it was going to happen. And um, so when I got the letter from um, uh, Joe Johnson, I, I roared with laughter because it was very demanding. It was only giving us a very short time in which to meet all their conditions. And it, their conditions are very specific. And it was quite clear that we could do it immediately. We'd met everything. The Chinese were signed up and they'd already put their first state, first payment of money in and everything. It was all really going. So um, basically, I went back to the, the civil servants and said, right, guys, thank you for the offer. We can meet your offer immediately. And can we come and have a meeting in Victoria Street and sit down and go through this? 
So I took the financial team there and we, we all sat down and we went through it. And we handed over all the contracts and all the documentation and everything else. And I said, um, well, there you are. You've got everything. We've met all your conditions. Can we please have the money? And there was a terrible silence. And um, uh, we all came away from the meeting and we had a wash up meeting afterwards. And we said to everybody in the, the, the financial team, well, what do you think? And they said, well, we, we've never been to a meeting like that before. We can't interpret what's happened. Basically, if you've got a situation where somebody has given you a, a, a massive challenge, an almost impossible challenge, and you've achieved it, everybody gets very excited. It's, it's an amazing achievement. It, it's a joint achievement, you know? But this wasn't that. And they wouldn't commu communicate with us anymore. And uh, I then had to go to China and uh, go and see the Chinese and say, look, I'm, I'm very sorry, but um, basically the British government is not going to meet its, uh, its offer and um, uh, we're stuck. We can't uh, go out and break your record, break the record for you in 2017. And uh, they were very understanding. They really were. And, um, uh, you know, I was expecting, you know, all sorts of fireworks and things over there, but no, they were very friendly. And they said, we quite understand, uh, but we're not going to support it on our own. And um, so that was the situation. And then somehow or other, we, we kept the project alive for a bit further while I desperately tried to get some money in to try and sort ourselves out. In the meantime, we kept up a huge battle. Um, we had a parliamentary team of about 10 and they kept on applying the pressure and applying the pressure. And 18 months later, I had this extraordinary meeting with the Secretary of State. And we, uh, we were suddenly uh, called in there for a meeting with him. And we, we, we turned up, and this is right in the top of the House of Commons. And, and I was just about to bang on the door to go in. And uh, our financial guy, um, Rick, said, uh, then I had a thought. I said to Rick, what do, what do you think about all this? Rick, you're a, you're a, you're a Pricewaterhouse um, Coopers person, PwC person. You know all of what happens with all these things. I don't. I'm a complete beginner here. So um, I'm about to knock on this door. What are they going to say? And Rick said, they're going to say, uh, you've got to cease and desist. You, of course, there's an awful lot of aggro, a lot of trouble, a lot of money, and we're not going to talk to you. So I said, well, Rick, I, <laughs> I hope you're wrong. So I banged on the door, and the door's flung open by the Secretary of State, who simply said, um, yeah, I'm Greg. He said, come and sit down. Are we going to get this wonderful project finished? Wow. And uh, that was a fantastic moment, a complete switch, but they'd left it too late. It had taken 18 months, by which time, of course, we were deep, the country was deep into Brexit, there was no more money. And so the next stage was I had to put it into um, administration. And the Secretary of State rang up and said, said uh, you know, why has this happened? And I said, well, you weren't going to give us any immediate money, the immediate money we wanted. I told you I couldn't support the thing. Um, you did very kindly approve the, the, the offer, but you raised the offer so we got to generate even more money and we couldn't do it. So that was that. Rubbish. Mm. How did you do it? 10 years of very hard work and 300 companies work and 31 million pounds blown. That was a learning experience. Yeah, very sad, isn't it? Very sad. But then you come back to the thing, you see, you've got to understand it. Um, the, the situation is um, uh, that you're dealing with a hierarchical organization. Mm -hmm. 
they can't deal with this sort of stuff. They really can't deal with this sort of stuff. And um, perhaps they should have acknowledged that at the start. So we didn't expect it, but there we go. Anyhow, we all tried, but there we are. Yeah, have you, and have you gotten over it? How do you feel about it? Oh, yes, uh, yes, of course you have, because it's just one of those things. Yeah. The car was uh, was sold at a very, very cheap price. was yeah. bought, and uh, it ran and made 628 miles an hour, which is jolly good. So that's something for the team. And, yeah. um, you know, um, and uh, then basically it's kind of stopped. Now, the latest is that it's been put into a museum to kind of rest there while um, more money is found. And I just hope they find it. I really hope they find it. Yeah. Because it's an awful waste of everybody's time and money and, um, you know, an effort that's gone into it. And also, we've let down, we've let down thousands and thousands of children, yeah. which isn't very clever. No, but you inspired... Yeah, we've inspired them, but, um, but, but basically we weren't able to deliver. No. It's not a huge sum of money, but there you go. Yeah. So, you know, we have to change. As a country, we have to change. And that's why the Take Risk book, why I wrote the Take Risk book. We've got to explain that, you know, the way forward now is taking risk and being innovative. And, of course, um, the, the future is fantastic. Yeah. If you take risk and create something new that's uh, that's got real potential, and you can raise your money um, basically through crowdfunding, then you don't need the city. You don't need the ruddy government. You no. don't need these people who don't understand um, risk. No. And the other thing about risk is that you've got to take risk all the time mm -hmm. so that you can, uh, you can understand risk. And risk is all about understanding what the person you're or the people you're negotiating with, how they are going to behave, et cetera, and anticipating that and ensuring that um, you're going to give them an opportunity to say yes. But you only got that if you've been taking risks for years and years and years. Yeah, I agree. And be able to control your reaction to, to whatever the, the outcome is. Oh, yes, of course. Because the name of the game is that, uh, you know, um, things happen. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad. When yeah. they're bad, you've got to quickly find a way of working around it. You know, that's, that's what it's all about. Yeah. You don't give up. Uh, what would have been your, what's been your most rewarding project to date? Uh, that's a very difficult one. That really is. I mean, thrust to, you know, going out and getting the world land speed record, something I wanted to do all my life. It was just a fantastic moment. Um, the ARV aeroplane. Yeah. God, that's a good aeroplane. Oh, I've got about three or 400 hours flying them. Oh, wow, we created this. We did it with a new aero engine and a new aeroplane. And we did it just in, uh, we got the first flight in 13 months from startup. What a team. And uh, then, of course, uh, you know, we, we made a mistake. We, well, we were a bit too ambitious. We were trying to do a ship. But uh, the ship sadly never got built, which was a real shame. Uh, and then, of course, we moved on to do uh, Break the Sound Barrier. And just standing there watching Andy Green come past with this huge supersonic bang that rocked all the trucks on their axles and things. You know, this is fantastic, absolutely amazing. You know. You just so uh, hopefully we've given a lot of people something to think about. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> what do you would you say has probably been your fondest memory? Oh, I can't really say that. I think the fondest memory is the next project. <laughs> Which 
there always is one. I know yeah, you can't what the next project is, but can you give me a hint? Not really, no, but uh, we're just at the very early days. There are 20 of us working on it. And we're at the very, very early days. We're tackling something which is, uh, which is very, very challenging. And we need to get it all lined up and sorted out before we can actually announce it and talk about it. So I hope that's going to happen. Really hope so. I can't wait. And we had a telephone call today, which suggests it might just happen. So you never know. How how long would we have to wait before we find out what? Ah, oh, I don't know. Not long, I hope. Richard. <laughs> um, okay, so very quickly, you had just a number of questions. We have actually covered a few of them, but good. Jockey McJockface, he said, "What's your training regime, mental and physical?" did you have to do to control a car at those speeds? We've covered that. So thank yep. you very much, Jockey McJockface, for that question. Uh, Chris Wright, were you influenced by Donald Campbell leading him to his involvement with the Thrust Project? Ah. Not really, no. Um, Donald Campbell was an amazing guy. He was very, very brave. Uh, principally, I think, because he... Yeah, he, he, yeah, he was living in the shade of his father. His father was I, the ideal sort of persona for doing this, a really gritty Scotsman. Donald Campbell was uh, a different sort of person altogether. Mm -hmm. And uh, so every, every year or so, you know, he had to go out and break the record to get the next dose of money. And, um, and he had to sort of steel himself up to do that. Uh, he produced a wonderful film called How Long a Mile? And I think he should have been a film director. I really do. But because he wasn't really the sort of person who really loved this, this business, um, basically, he, um, he was very brave because he did it. Very brave. When are you going to have a film? Oh, well, there's always talk about doing the supersonic film, etc. But you know how these things happen in Britain. It won't happen for another 20 years or so. No, that's clear. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll all be long gone by then. Yeah. Uh, Vpand53, we've covered this. Is the plan for Bloodhound SSC to hit 1,000 miles an hour still on? Uh, you have to talk to the Bloodhound team about that now. Yeah. Uh, basically, when, when it was sold, uh, Mr. Warhurst didn't want me on board. And uh, so the, the, many of the, the team went at that particular point. So I left the project at that point. I don't know what's happened to it really since because I'm not involved. Yeah. But um, I just hope so, because that's what we set out to do. I hope so too. David Jones, what does success look like for you? Hmm. Success is awful. Absolutely bloody awful. <laughs> because the enjoyment is in the battle to actually get to the other end. That's the thing, the teamworking, the working together, the, uh, all that sort of stuff, the extraordinary experience, the brave people come forward and say, yeah, I'll back it, yeah, I'll, I'll risk my, uh, my, my budget on this. Uh, this is what it's all about. But when you've succeeded, it's all over. It's kind of dead. Oh my God. And, um, it's, uh, and of course, all your teamwork collapses. I mean, you're all friends for life, of course. But uh, your teamwork simply collapses because there's no point anymore. It's just over. So success is um, maybe 30 minutes of uh, 
extreme excitement having having finally got there and then after after that that's a great shame that's so true do you know what i interviewed glenn mccrory boxer uh, yeah. and i asked him uh, like he pretty much said the same thing, you know, that the, the winning of the world championship fight and all those sorts of things, it's not about the fight. It's about the lead up to it because- That's right, it's about getting there, yep. Yeah, mm. it's not very long, you know, and, and then it's done. It's done, exactly, yeah. The and then you've got to think again, what, what, what are you going to do now, you know? Yeah. How interesting. We need to rewrite success or, the, you know- I think we do, yeah, because- uh, some people measure success in terms of money, but um, that's a mistake. That's a real mistake because, you know, um, you can only eat so many breakfasts. You can only have so many cars or whatever. And, uh, you know, that's not very satisfying at all. Um, it's actually about um, it's actually about the fight. The, yeah, the journeys. The journey, yeah. Stefan Bendix, this is a great question. Uh, what was your first speeding ticket when, where, what car, and how fast were you going? <laughs> right. Oh, well, that's a good one. Thank you, Stefan. That's a really good one. My first speeding ticket was when I was age 19. I was caught on the uh, the Great West Road uh, in my car. And my car was, um, uh, I bought from a scrapyard for uh, 20 quid, which was a 1936 SS Jaguar. Um, saloon, which I love dearly, wow. and uh, it was a great machine, absolutely great machine. But in those days, uh, old relics like that were very, very cheap. So yeah, brilliant. Nick Smith, why aren't you Sir Richard? Oh God, we don't want that. No, no, absolutely no. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm yeah. <laughs> the problem is, if that happens, basically you can't go on innovating anymore. It's all over. You've joined the establishment. No, no, you can't do that. True. Yeah, that's the opposite of who you are. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, yeah, heaven's sake. Uh, Paul Turner, we've covered this, actually. It's pr I pretty much asked it. What gave you the most satisfaction, breaking the land speed record yourself or leading the team that got Andy Green supersonic? I think uh, the, uh, the sheer achievement, that team achievement of breaking the sound barrier was just astonishing. Uh, it really was. It was such a, it was a terrific group of people. Um, they fought like hell. There were every kind of battle and difficulty, and we got through it together, which is just amazing, absolutely amazing. And, of course, the record still stands. And, uh, no, uh, well, of course, the next thing up is probably, and I hope, Bloodhound. And, of course, the Australians are busy working away, creating a, a really horrendous rocket machine, so... McLaren. Hopefully, there's going to be a next generation. Was it satisfying that McLaren never uh, achieved their Maverick? Yeah. Um, well, I'm. When we saw the Maverick and the pictures of the Maverick, and later on the picture, uh, at least I, I was absolutely horrified. Mm. I thought this is so bloody dangerous. They don't know what the hell they're doing. Um, and um, I, uh, I'm so glad actually that it. It didn't go any further because I think it was a killer. Have you ever come up with a project uh, uh, that that just has never, that you've never even put into, put the wheels into motion? 
Well, there are always lots of ideas and, and things. And uh, yeah, but um, uh, one of the ones that uh, I loved was the taxi airplane, because uh, basically we have a very big one. That was a brilliant idea. It's a brilliant yeah, idea. Yeah, yes, yes. I mean, but we're dealing with Britain, you see, and uh, basically people don't take risks, so therefore uh, it didn't get proper finance. And uh, it did, uh, it was, uh, there was a big battle where the ownership transferred to somebody else. It did fly and it made its numbers. Yeah. But they weren't able to deal with the marketing and they weren't able to take it to the next stage, which Wait, is a real problem. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Makes much more sense to me than HS2 as well. Oh, yes. Yeah, 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 exactly. And uh, a very small budget with HS2. Yeah. But there you are, there you are, you're dealing with another hierarchical organization. It's just like the, the generals, you know, always fight the battles of the last war. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, so, yeah. Um, how cathartic was it to write your book? Your books? I, I enjoyed writing it a lot. I, basically, yes, it was cathartic, of course, because basically we we'd all had a big letdown because of the failure of, uh, of, of the Bloodhound project. And, um, uh, and um, yes, but my fundamental problem was that we wanted to get across to people that you've got to take risk. You've got to change. Uh, you can't go on existing like this. We've got to think of the, uh, the next generation, all the kids. I've, I've got five grandchildren, you know. Um, we've got to be a, a country that's really going somewhere. <laughs> not like not like where we are now. We're we're all risk averse and we're not battling. I agree. How on earth have you coped through lockdown? You must have been chomping at the bit, or did it give you? Oh well, yes. I've been working on the new concepts and the new project and all right. that. And uh, yeah, and um, I was it was actually very pleasant. Actually, I got a lot of lot of things done and a lot of books read and all those things I've been meaning to do for so long. You know. Yes. Um, did any of your cars have names other than Thrust? You know, did they have a nickname or, you know, and were they girls? Sorry, say again. Did Didn't any, come through. So your Thrust, your, your, the, did any of the cars have nicknames or names that weren't? No, 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 no. Were they, they were girls? generally known as the car. The car, yeah. <laughs> the car, yes. And is there anything that you wish... And the Thrust name worked out really very well indeed. Yeah, oh, for sure. Sorry, you've broken up. Is there anything that you wish you'd done more of? Uh, I, I missed the question. Uh, is there anything that you wish you'd have done more I of? wish that we'd been more successful with the aeroplane, uh, the both aeroplanes, the ARV, which was, uh, had no reason to fail. It was just basically the city people were bored of us. Um, and they... Um, uh, they failed to support it, and um, that was that was a real shame. It was a huge achievement to actually got the airplane certificated and into production with a transport of category C of A. Mm. And I flew through them into Heathrow. That was one of my great moments: was taking off down the runway at Heathrow and seeing uh, all these huge jets lining up. You know, and there we are in this tiny little airplane, and the passengers and the jets looking through the windows, wondering what the hell is happening. I'm frightened as hell because uh, if we get caught in the uh, exhaust stream from any of those jets, we'll just get blown away. Oh my God. But it was a great moment. Down the runway, straight down the runway, and turn sharp left and head south, quick. <laughs> and is there anything that you wished you'd done less of? 
Uh, no, I'm quite happy with where I am actually. <laughs> but we've got a few more, few more things to do now. And is there anything the world does not know about you? Oh, I don't want the world to know anything about me, but it's about the projects and it's about the team. <laughs> Richard, you've been absolutely incredible guest. You talk about, you know, wanting to inspire the future. You really are doing that on such a global scale and you've inspired me hugely. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for your research and for asking all those searching questions. I've learned a lot too. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for taking the time out and best of luck with your project. I cannot wait to find out what it is and what's your journey. It's a goodie. It's a real goodie. <laughs> I don't doubt it.